stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. I think there were those who maybe aren't convinced that this has been the case. Uh, and people who are still struggling to understand why it's been the case. But it's pretty clear that over the last couple of decades, certainly over the last even three or four decades, we have seen a dramatic drop in violence, a dramatic drop in violent crime, a dramatic drop in murder rates. And, and why? There, there's no obvious answer. There's no one magic solution that has taken us in that direction. In fact, it's right across the United States, right across Canada, uh, and in other countries too. Countries with very different laws, even U.S. states and cities with very different laws and policing approaches. But nor is it a guarantee that those trends are going to continue over the next two decades. So uh, with all of that in mind, there's a fascinating new book that, that explores all of this, why there's been this decline, what it's meant for big cities especially, where much of this crime had previously been concentrated, and, and what the issues are that we need to confront going forward to ensure that this doesn't reverse itself, these positive trends. Uh, the book is called Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, Renewal of City Life, and the Next War on Violence. Uh, joining us on the line is the author of this book, Professor at New York University, Patrick Sharkey. Patrick, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Sure. Thanks for having me. You know, it's fascinating because um, big Canadian cities have, have seen the same kind of trend as, as big American cities. So there, there's something going on here. But do you also run into a lot of people who, for whatever reason, seem in denial uh, about the fact that, that crime is, is on the decline? Yeah, well, the fundamental issue is that most people are not personally victims of, of, of violent crime. So, you know, that results in a situation where people are turning to different uh, media sources or politicians for their information on, on how violence is changing. And we know uh, with certainty that at least uh, there are several forms of media uh, bias that really distort the public's perceptions of how much violence there is. So we're in a situation... For instance, in the U.S., where you know, in polls about uh, asking people whether violence is falling or rising, respondents always seem to think that it's rising and, and even think that crime has risen since the 1990s, when in fact, you know, it's dropped at least in half. Right. Well, and I mean, part of that is is media, I suppose. And we, we see stories about uh, horrible crimes and, and maybe we perceive that that's the norm. And as you say, I think there are politicians who have a vested interest in saying, look, you're in danger. Crime is on the rise. I'm going to get tough. I'm going to go after the criminals. I'm going to keep you safe. Yeah, that's right. And and the truth is, you know, there are a whole bunch of different actors uh, in these debates who also have an incentive to make the problem seem urgent. And so, you know, it's even activists, even researchers who are studying violence who kind of depend on, you know, making clear how urgent the problem is. And so, you know, what I emphasize is the problem has not lost its urgency. A lot of my book deals with the impact of violence. And I think we know we have better evidence than ever before on how destructive violence is. Uh, so there is urgency there. And the public is, is always focused on the issue of violence. Um, but I also think it's, it's important to not distort the data and to not distort the reali reality of how much violence is, because you want to tell the hopeful story that, that you know, things can improve, cities can transform, and, and we've certainly seen that over time. 
Right. And maybe one of the reasons why it seems counterintuitive to a lot of people is there's not an obvious reason. We didn't, you know, strike some grand victory over crime. I mean, it happened over time and it probably happened for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Can we pinpoint then the reason why crime has has been declining substantially? Well, what we know is that there is not a single reason. Uh, What I argue in the book is that there are a whole set of changes that took place in the early 1990s. And together, they form the best explanation for why violence fell. Um, when, when we think about what changed, it was really there was a transformation of public spaces, meaning that uh, public spaces, particularly city neighborhoods that were largely abandoned, left on their own to deal with the problem of violent crime for decades, started to uh, change in very clear ways. And part of that was that police forces expanded and became more aggressive, started to shut down open-air drug markets, uh, imprisonment continued to increase. Um, but there were another set of changes as, as well. You know, what I show in the book is that there was this proliferation of community groups in the neighborhoods hit hardest who mobilized on a large scale in, that, in the 1990s and formed new organizations specifically to deal with violent crime and also to provide space, safe spaces for kids to retake public parks and playgrounds. And, you know, this hasn't been looked at at a national level, but uh, the data that, that I used in the U.S. Uh, looks at this across all cities. And, you know, the evidence that I generate suggests that this had a causal impact. This is one of the most important changes that took place in the early 1990s, even though it's received no attention uh, in a debates about why crime has fallen. I think it's a fundamental part of what happened. And it's part of this transformation of public space that, that took place and that I think is the best explanation for why violence fell when it did and where it did. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, you know, a big part of this book is talking about this renewal of city life and what's happened in a lot of big American cities. And, you know, like I say, similar trends here in big Canadian cities um, that that did the renewal of city life follow the reduction in crime or did the renewal in, in urban living help to cause the reduction in crime? Yeah, no, I think it's reasonable to to say that uh, both happen. In other words, that there's a reciprocal relationship there. Um, I do think that, you know, cities don't change until they until they become safe. Neighborhoods don't change until they become safe. So I think of it as as the fundamental problem that cities have to deal with, because, you know, when when you're looking at a neighborhood and thinking about where to invest, where to raise a family, whether you're if you're a business owner, where to set up shop. Uh, if you're a developer, you know, which neighborhood uh, do you want to invest your capital in? Um, all of these questions depend on whether the community is, is safe. Um, so, you know, the case that I make is really that neighborhoods, the idea of city life doesn't work uh, if public spaces are unsafe. And it's only when you deal with that first order question, how do we make sure that everybody feels comfortable going out into public space and knows that they won't be victimized and that their kids won't be victimized? Once you solve that question, then everything else becomes possible. And then it creates this virtuous circle where as violence falls, new investment arises, new people emerge, and that then contributes to the subsequent decline in violence as well. So it's certainly reciprocal in that sense. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, the United States has a lot of very large cities, uh, and, and these cities differ in a lot of different ways. I mean, New York stands out perhaps maybe because a, it's the biggest city, uh, and, and B, maybe because its drop in crime has been, been so dramatic. In fact, just, you know, some of the stats I've seen just in, in the past year as to, to how low some of these numbers have got, it's, it's quite striking. 
but again, I mean, there have been different approaches taken within, even within these different cities. I mean, you could go back over the past couple of decades, different mayors of New York with different approaches to policing and crime, et cetera. So, I mean, it, it speaks to, to how complex this all is. Yeah, it is complex. And I think you're exactly right. You know, you can't point to something that happened at a specific point implemented in a specific city and say, well, that's what caused the crime drop, because this happened all over the country. And and as you know, you know, it happened all over in many parts of the developed world. And, and so there there are larger forces at work here, which is why I kind of make the case that when you look at U.S. cities, you have to think about the set of changes. It wasn't just a shift in police tactics. OK, it was it was a whole set of changes to public space. And some of them were positive and some of them were very negative. Some of them led to, you know, the increase in police violence that w- that we've seen. You know, that's a part of the story. And what I try to do in the book is, you know, I, I, I stick with the data uh, in as rigorous a manner as, as possible and try to have an honest discussion about what generated this change in our in, in cities. Um, and then, you know, toward the end of the book, I grapple with the question, OK, you know, well, these are the set of changes that matter. This is why violence fell. Now, what do we need to think about in developing the next model? Where, where do we tweak? How do we get a, how do we generate a continuing decline in violence without some of the costs that came with aggressive and violent policing and mass incarceration and so forth? Right. It's another factor you talk about in the book, and that's that's immigration. And, you know, and, and that's another issue that becomes very polarizing, of course, in the political arena. Uh, but it's not just that the crime went down in spite of immigration. Uh, you, you argue that that was maybe one of one of the factors in driving it down. Yeah. So shifting populations in central city uh, neighborhoods. Uh, plays a role in, in the revitalization of communities. And, and I think, you know, there's there's sufficiently strong evidence there to kind of make that point uh, confidently. Um, and, you know, so the the it, it's part of a broader pattern where political debates, you know, and this is going to be obvious, but I'll just say it out loud, P- political debates kind of drift away from what we know. And it's not like we know everything, but there's certain things that we know with, with pretty good confidence. One is that immigration does not increase crime. So in the U.S., obviously, that, that's been a, a major political issue here. And it's it's amazing to see how distorted the debate becomes and how distance it becomes from the evidence available, uh, which is why, you know, I start, I kind of start with drilling down on the evidence as far as we can, and then expand and talk about what it means and what we should do with it. But if you, if you don't trust the, the person delivering the evidence, then, you know, uh, it's hard to make any progress in these debates. What about the issue of guns? There's another emotional issue. But, I mean, you, you have this, this weird trend where cities and states with tough gun laws see the same trends downward as, as cities and states with, with looser gun laws. Yeah, so the gun debate is uh, another really complex one. What we know in the U.S. is that uh, guns don't necessarily affect violent crime overall, but they make violent crime much more lethal, uh, meaning our, the, the violent crime rate in the U.S. is not that different from a lot of the countries in the developed world, uh, but our homicide rate is, is substantially higher. Uh, and the primary or the most obvious explanation for that is just the prevalence of guns in the U.S. Um, so it's it's you're right that, you know, violence fell everywhere, including places with lots of guns on, on the street. 
Um, uh, but that doesn't uh, preclude the, the empirical fact that where there are more guns, there are more homicides. Doesn't necessarily mean there's more violence, but it means there are more homicides. More people are dying uh, from gunfire. Yeah. Now, so we talk about how this has transformed cities. As cities become safer and in families, more affluent people are willing to move back in, into cities. We get what's known as gentrification, which not everybody's a, a fan of. Is gentrification uh, a good thing? Well, there are certain cities where it's not a good thing, where it... Um, that leads to rising rents and displacement so that the original residents of a community who lived through those very violent times are no longer there to experience the better times, the times where violence has fallen. And that's, so that's certainly there are some cities, some very hot real estate markets and, and, and specific neighborhoods where that happens. Uh, what, the case that I make in the book is that it's not nearly as prevalent uh, as, as one would think based on the debates about gentrification. Um, so it, it, you know, looking across U.S. cities as a whole, gentrification is, is pretty rare. Um, uh, it, it, it happens in a small number of very hot, hot markets uh, and in a specific number of communities within those markets. Um, so it's not as common as we think. And, you know, the, the broader argument that I make is we can deal with gentrification. You know, there are policies that can take housing out of the market, make sure there's affordable housing, make sure that families can stay in neighborhoods as they, as they change. Uh, and those policies, we know what they are. If there's a commitment to those policies, then they can, they can be implemented and be very effective. Um, the second point is that, you know, when you think about American cities, there was a period from the 70s to the 90s where American cities really became associated with violence. So city life came with violence. And the biggest problem in American cities was the problem of violent crime and the depopulation of cities. So there was this period where cities were losing populations, where poverty was becoming increasingly concentrated, and cities just seemed like they were going downhill. Right now, I think you know people who point to gentrification as a major social problem are right, but it's reflecting how much cities have changed. Cities are no longer associated with violence in the way that they were 25 years ago. Now the problem is too much demand for people to get into communities instead of people wanting to get out. So it's, it's still a problem, and I, I, you know, I make sure that I don't dismiss it, um, but I do think it reflects just how much city life has changed over the past few decades. Right. And regarding crime and violence, I mean, this is not a book that's that's advocating complacency. It's not necessarily written in stone that 25 years from now we'll have seen the same downward trend as we've seen over the past 25 years. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and a good chunk of the book is really reviewing and and demonstrating the new evidence we have on how destructive violence is, because this is new evidence. I think in the past, everybody knows that violence is bad, but in the past 10 years, there has just been a new round of empirical studies that are much more rigorous than what's been done in the past. And what they, these studies show is that kids living in, vi- in violent environments suffer when they get into the school. They, can't, they have more difficulty focusing uh, on tests at school. Their cognitive development suffers. Their academic achievement suffers. Later in life, they're less likely to move upward out of poverty when they live in violent environments. So the, the kind of initial message of the book is, well, we've all known that violence is bad, but, but look at how destructive it is, A, to individual lives, uh, to exacerbating inequality, uh, to communities as a whole. 
Um, and I make sure to, to put that front and center because the, we cannot lose the urgency uh, behind the effort to control violence. And, and that's absolutely crucial. So, you know, part of the book is, is a positive story about how much violence has fallen. But the underlying message is that this violence is the fundamental challenge of cities. Uh, cities don't work if they are violent. Yeah, indeed. Well, the book is called Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline, The Renewal of City Life in the Next War on Violence. Patrick Sharkey, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Sure. Thanks for having me. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.